From CJSR FM 88.5, broadcasting from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, this is the CJSR edition. My name is Matt Hergy. And my name is Roshni Nair. A note before we begin. This episode of the CJSR edition contains sensitive content and graphic testimonials that might be disturbing to some people. If you or someone you know is experiencing distress, please call the Indian Residential Schools Crisis Line at 1-866-925-4419. The Mohawk Institute Residential School in Brantford, Ontario, is widely considered to be the first Canadian Indian residential school. It began operating as a residential school for boys in 1834. Founded on the ill-conceived belief on behalf of the Canadian federal government that First Nations needed to become assimilated into European customs and Christianity, the government passed an amendment to the Indian Act in 1884 that made schooling compulsory for status Indians under the age of 16. Since many lived in remote areas, they were forced to relocate and attend residential schools. In all, about 150,000 First Nation, Inuit, and Métis children were removed from their communities and forced to attend the schools. The last residential school was closed in 1996 in Saskatchewan, 162 years after the first residential school was opened. Alberta had about 25 residential schools, more than in any other province. 15 were administered by Roman Catholic dioceses or religious congregations. About 12,000 survivors live in the province today, the largest portion of those in Edmonton. Established on June 1st, 2008, the goals of the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, include documenting and promoting the extent and impact of residential school experiences, providing a safe setting for former students to share their stories, and producing a report to the federal government on the legacy of the residential school system. The Commission has held events in several Canadian cities to publicly address the experiences of First Nations, Métis and Inuit children in residential schools across the country. In March 2014, a group of CJSR producers attended the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's Alberta National Event, the final national event held by the Commission. This particular event gathered public testimonial from survivors and focused on the Indigenous teaching of wisdom. On this week's episode of the CJSR edition, it is with great respect that we bring you excerpts from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's Alberta National Events opening ceremonies. Here is Edmonton's Mayor, Don Iveson, speaking at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's Alberta National Event, which took place on traditional Treaty 6 Plains Cree territory in Edmonton, Alberta, on March 27th, 2014. Elders, chiefs, fellow elected officials uh, from the federal, provincial, and and local orders of government, uh, representatives of Treaty 6, on whose land we're very pleased to gather here today, including Chief Alexis.
We are gathering in the remarkable spirit of a tradition of many thousands of years of assembly here at this special bend in the North Saskatchewan River. We call it Edmonton today, but it's been known by many names over the generations. It's been a very special place for a long time, a place of cultural exchange, commercial exchange, treaty making, and governance. And so I remind you that we're gathered in that spirit today, a spirit which we are working very hard at Edmonton City Hall to better acknowledge, because this is not a 200-year-old place. This is an 8,000-year-old place. And we celebrate that for all the richness that it entails. I also want to thank the leaders from the faith community who have joined us here in the crowd and especially up on the stage here. Please remember how difficult this will be for them to hear the stories of the survivors. Their colleagues who operated the residential schools were, were proceeding from charity and kindness for the most part. And that needs to be remembered as part of the truth. And so I thank them for their courage in attending and bearing witness as well. Edmonton is fully committed to reconciliation. We signed an unprecedented urban Aboriginal accord in 2007 under the leadership of my, my uh, predecessor, Mayor Stephen Mandel, and the City Council at the time, and we remain fully committed to that accord and everything that it entails. There are many examples of cooperation between Indigenous organizations in the City of Edmonton, uh, many recent examples celebrating arts and culture and the language uh, and teachings of Indigenous people, but we're just getting started. I think it's fitting that we're here in Edmonton for the final stop of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in the national event because this city will soon have the largest urban Aboriginal population in the country. People have spoken about that statistic with great fear in their hearts. And it is time to stop that. It is time to celebrate it. Because First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people see the same opportunity in Edmonton that my family sees, and sees a welcoming community, a place where we can thrive, where we can learn, where we can do business together, where we can celebrate each other's language and culture. That is the kind of Edmonton we are building, and Indigenous people are welcome. And among those numbers, close to 60,000 Indigenous people, there are 12,000 survivors. The, heart, the, the largest number in the country, concentrated here in Edmonton. And so it's an honour for me to have been asked on behalf of the people I serve here in Edmonton to be an honorary witness, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity to do that. It will support my continuing work and the work of my colleagues at the City, not just on City Council, but our 11,000 colleagues in public service at the City of Edmonton as we seek the truth together and as we work together towards reconciliation. 
So finally, I'd like to thank specifically Justice Littlechild, or Justice Sinclair, Commissioners Littlechild and Wilson, and all of the staff of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the many volunteers who are making today and the coming days possible and who will ensure that it is safe and successful and um, an opportunity for healing for all of us together. Uh, we are very honoured here in Edmonton to be your hosts. Thank you. This is Justice Murray Sinclair, one of the three commissioners for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the others being Dr. Marie Wilson and Chief Wilton Littlechild. Justice Sinclair was the first Aboriginal judge in Manitoba, and in recent years he's traveled across the country, along with the other commissioners, gathering testimonials from survivors as part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Hello, everybody. I'm proud to say I am Mizenegizik of the community of Peguis and Manitoba, land of the dirty water, as they call it. I want to uh, begin by acknowledging with thanks the welcomes that we have received here as commissioners for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and in particular, acknowledge that we are in the traditional territory of the Treaty 6 people. And uh, I think all of the Treaty 6 people who are here appear to be voting for Mayor Iverson. <laughs> so he has, he has brought his voting entourage with him, and I, I thank him for that. I also want to thank the drummers and the uh, elders for the opening that they have uh, helped us to, to perform, and also want to uh, thank the many freemen for lighting the kudlik for us and helping us for that portion of the event as well. There are a number of dignitaries present here that I am uh, called upon to acknowledge, and I. Uh, I know that many of them have been recognized. I'm not going to repeat the ones who have been recognized, but I'd like to acknowledge the following. Uh, the Grand Chiefs who are present include Regional Chief Cam Alexis, who has already spoken. Uh, but we have Grand Chief Craig Mackinac, the Confederacy of Treaty Six First Nations, who is here. <laughs> Grand Chief Charles we Weaselhead of Treaty Seven First Nations Association. Grand Chief Richard Capo, Treaty 8, First Nations of Alberta. And all of the other chiefs who are here, I acknowledge your presence as well, and thank you for being here. I want to make one small minor correction to the announcement of the earlier dignitaries to make sure that we acknowledge my good friend Clem Chartier, who is here with us as well. Um, and I don't know where Clem has disappeared to. Oh, there he is. 
Now, it's quite possible that Clem did stand up, but I didn't see him, so I... <laughs> His name was mispronounced, and I know that uh, we, we are, require that we acknowledge him properly, so I acknowledge Clem, who has been with us uh, as president of the Métis National Council at uh, our national events throughout. And though the Métis people have not been properly included and acknowledged in the reconciliation movement and in the, the work of the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement on behalf of the Commission, we have tried to include them as much as possible. And yet, there is a great deal of injustice that they still have to come to terms with this government and the people of Canada. Also, I would like to acknowledge that there are other representatives of the Métis Nation of Alberta, and I welcome you as well. And uh, I understand that later today we will be given an opportunity to welcome the new interim premier for the province of Alberta. Uh, present with us, I'm told, are perhaps other ministers of the Alberta government, and I welcome you, and the members of the Legislative Assembly of Alberta who are with us. I understand there are federal members of parliament and uh, senators who might be present. But the one I do recognize is the Honorable Thomas Mulcair. And has he gone somewhere? He's on the phone somewhere? OK. There's a crisis in Ottawa that we're now taking care of. In addition to expressing my extreme jealousy at the popularity of your mayor, I also want to acknowledge I also want to acknowledge that yesterday at the City Council Chambers, we were honored to be present when City Council voted unanimously to adopt a proclamation which recognized that starting today, or tomorrow, <laughs> the City of uh, Edmonton has de declared a year of reconciliation for this territory. And more on that will be, will be said later, I'm sure, but at the same time, we do know that uh, that message is out there, and it's an important, an important statement for us to, to know is behind our presence here as well. I also wanted to uh, acknowledge all of those who are here as our honorary witnesses, and uh, there are far too many of you for me to name particularly, but I do want to acknowledge that during the course of the next few days, you'll meet our honorary witnesses who are here. And also, we, we will have an opportunity to meet those uh, who will be inducted as honorary witnesses. And more will be said about that later. We have present with us also representatives of the various parties to the settlement agreement. And for those of you who are not aware of it, this commission was created by a court-ordered and court-approved settlement agreement which settled all of the legal claims that had been made against the government of Canada. And so the parties to the settlement agreement are a key part of our work. And we have uh, representatives from the various parties as well. Some of them you've already met. You've met National Chief Sean Atlio, who will be speaking to you later. Uh, Evelyn Storr, representing the Inuit Teperit Kanatami, is here, I think. Is that you? <laughs> okay. You were already introduced, right? Thank you. Um, so I'm not going to introduce everybody by name because they've, uh, they've already been called upon to stand. So 
let me uh, just indicate as well that uh, as commissioners, Commissioner Littlechild, Commissioner Wilson and I uh, are advised in our work by survivor committee members, some of whom were introduced or, to you last night at the, the reception, but I also want to ask all of the members of our survivors committee who are seated over here to stand up because we'd like to acknowledge you. And these are all survivors of Indian Residential School, and I think Eugene tells me at one point they sat down and calculated that they represent about 4,922 years of Indian Residential Schooling because Eugene was in school longer than everybody else. <laughs> and uh, I'd like to, on behalf, again, of the commissioners, ask all of the survivors who are present in the room just to stand up so we can acknowledge you. We are here as a commission because, survivors, you have endured. You are the ones who have called upon the government of this country and the churches who were involved in the operation of residential schools to be held to account for the actions that, were, that occurred within the schools and the actions that injured you, particularly while you were there, but also all of the things that were intended to be done by the schools and were done with you as the primary victims. And because of the efforts of the survivors of the Indian Residential School experience in this country in commencing litigation against the defendant churches and government, the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement uh, was created. And it was at the request of the survivors that a Truth and Reconciliation Commission was established so that they would have an opportunity to tell the Canadian public and the world the stories of their experiences in those schools for two reasons. One was because they knew how important it was for their healing as well as for the healing of their families, their communities, and this country. But also because they wanted to ensure that a national memory was created for this country to ensure that this would never happen again. About 140 years ago, the Government of Canada embarked upon a process of taking children away from their families in Aboriginal communities and placing them into so-called educational institutions. But we know from our work at the Commission, as it will be revealed in our report, that for the first part of the existence of those schools, very little in the way of education actually occurred. The schools were actually centers of indoctrination. We know that with the intention being to take children away not only from their families, not only from their mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, and their grandfathers, grandmothers, cousins and nephews and, and, and nieces, 
but the intent also was to take those children away from their culture, to take them away from their language, and to indoctrinate them into a different culture and a different language in order that they would be assimilated and become like everybody else in this country. The government was so committed to that that even though the, church, the, the, the schools were considered failures at the outset in terms of succeeding in that, the government persevered for 130 years to try to do that. And it took that long for people to realize that it was never going to happen because indigenous people are resilient people. You cannot take a group of people in this world who are familiar with the land and the territory and who know where to hide everything that needs to be hidden <laughs> and expect that somehow their drums, their pipes, their ceremonial knowledge, their teaching materials are somehow going to disappear just because you tell them to make them disappear. Those things were hidden away for the future generations that were to come. And we know that there were many, many generations where some of those things were not known. But more and more lately, because the children and grandchildren of survivors are demanding to know who they are, demanding to know where they come from, demanding to know what it means to be an Anishinaabe, what it means to be a Dene, what it means to be an Inuk, what it means to be a Métis. Because they are making those demands, now those things must be brought out to them. Because we know, as a commission, that the ambition of reconciliation should be to establish a relationship of mutual respect between the entities who are involved in these schools. But before we can have mutual respect, we must first of all ensure that our children and our grandchildren have a strong sense of self-respect. And in order for us to affect that kind of change, we know that we require leadership. We require leadership like we see from Mayor Iverson and other leaders across the country who stand up publicly in front of their citizens and say, we need to change things. We need to change the way that we do things. We need to change the way that we talk. We need to change the way that we behave. And that's important because people are not naturally born to be racist. We teach them how to be. And we model that behavior for them. And so when so many people out there talk about Aboriginal people in a disrespectful way, it's because they have been taught and educated how to be disrespectful. And what we need to do now is to understand the importance of teaching our children and grandchildren and future generations how to be respectful towards each other. And it begins with this. Our leaders today must learn how to talk to and about each other in a more respectful way. And they must not only learn how to do it in public forums such as this and in places where there is formality and ceremony, but they also must learn how to do it when they are at the dinner table with their children, when they are talking to their grandchildren.
They must also learn how to do it when they are talking in the privacy of their conversations with their friends in their, in their private places, because that is where minds are changed. That is where attitudes are changed. That is where behavior starts to change. And so it is through involving our leadership in this conversation that we know that we are going to move towards reconciliation if we can just stop people from being so disrespectful to each other. And at the Art Commission, we know that part of the obligation that we have to help make that happen is to look at what happened, to gather the truth, to talk to the survivors and have the survivors put on the record their stories so that those stories would be the foundation for a dialogue about reconciliation in the future, so that their truths would help people to understand in the future that indeed this did happen, believe it or not, and that it happened in a way that it never should have happened, that children were in fact taken away from their families and institutionalized for all of their childhood, that they were never raised in a proper family environment, so that people will understand why it is that there are families that cannot function properly back in indigenous communities, why there are so many people who do not know who they are, who cannot stand up and explain to you what it means to be Anishinaabe, or what their teachings are. They don't know their creation stories because it's never been taught to them. They don't know who their heroes are. They've never been taught about Tecumseh and all of the other leaders of this world who have stood up for our people in the past because those stories have never been given to us. We can tell you all about Christopher Columbus, at least the mythology that they teach in the schools. We can tell you about those kinds of lies. We can tell you about Dick and Jane and Spot and Puff. <laughs> but we cannot tell you who our traditional heroes are. We cannot tell you very much about those people hundreds of years ago who stood up and said, we need to be careful about this relationship that we are forming. We need to be careful about how things are going to move in the future. And there were leaders who said that. There is a prophecy among the Ojibwe's which talk about how the arrival of the European and the Eastern part of this country was going to have an impact upon them and they moved their teachings, they move their knowledge, they move their leaders, they move themselves further to the West in order to create that buffer zone from that event. And they talked about the things that could happen. That eight fires prophecy was made widely known to many of you through the CBC's television production called Eight Fi Eighth Fire. And that production was brought to you by none other than Wab Canoe, one of our own. And he brought that to you because he knew that teaching. He had been told that teaching when he was a little boy. And he wanted you to know that teaching. He wanted you to understand, all of you who are here, to understand why it was that things needed to change, that there was something more to this relationship than what the history books have talked about, that in fact the mythology of the history teachings that have occurred to this point in time have not all been right. And so because of that, we are now beginning to reach back with the help of the survivors who are here in the room and others to learn about what happened 
so that we can look forward to a brighter future for our children and our grandchildren. And I want to ask if those who are intergenerational survivors who are here, the children and the grandchildren, the nephews and the nieces of survivors, if you are here, would you please stand up? The future of reconciliation is going to be placed in the hands of these young people. The obligation to fix this problem is going to be passed on to them. That's a heavy burden that we're going to do. That's a heavy responsibility. It's too much to ask of you. But it is something we have to ask of you because we want you to know that we have come to realize we will not achieve reconciliation within the term of this commission. We will not achieve reconciliation even in our lifetime. But we will achieve reconciliation if we commit to it. And if we agree on where reconciliation is going to take us, reconciliation should take us to that relationship of mutual respect. And if that's the commitment that we make, then everything that we do in the future in this country will be measured against the question of whether it will move us into a position of mutual respect. And if that's the case, then reconciliation will be achieved. Reconciliation is inevitable because we are not going to be able to allow the current situation and the situation of the historical past continue anymore. In creating, in creating our national memory, we have committed to establishing a national archive in which we are depositing the records of the government and the churches who are obligated to provide them to us so that future generations, when they have the time and the interest and the ability, will be able to look at those documents to determine for themselves how their individual ancestors have been affected directly by the schools. And in turn, they will be able to come to terms with this better, perhaps, than we are today in the short time that we are given. But here at this very important threshold, as we enter the final national event, for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We have embarked upon a commitment to you that this particular conversation that we're going to have with you today is going to be about reconciliation. We are going to challenge you to help the commissioners to understand what should we as commissioners say to Canadian society, to the world, about what we have to do about this, about how we are going to help these young people who stood up here today so hopeful that they would be able to say, I am proud to be Anishinaabe. We want them to be able to say that. But in order for them to say that, we have to give them something more than anger. We have to give them something more than frustration. We have to give them a pathway to self-respect and pride. And so, survivors, we call upon you to help us do that. And in this conversation that we're going to have here, we're going to, ask us, we're going to ask you to use your best judgment because this national event is dedicated to the teaching of wisdom. And wisdom is about bringing forward the knowledge and the experience that we have and finding a balance between those two things, between our knowledge and our experience. 
and combining it with our hope for the future. And what is it then that we need to do? And so all of that speaks to the importance of this national event going forward, because after this national event, our commission will only be with you for one more year. And at the end of that time, we will be closing our offices. We will be closing down our operations. And then the obligation for all of the work goes back to the people of this country, including you. Because our message is very clear. It has been a refrain that we have said from the beginning, and we repeat to you now, this experience of residential schools is not an Aboriginal problem. It's a Canadian problem. So we thank you, all of you who are here, for being here and for joining with us. And I look forward to participating with you over the course of the next four days in the work that we're going to do. We're going to ask each of you who are here to remember that now that we have gathered here with the assistance of the elders who are working with us, this is now a sacred place. This is now a place where we are inviting our elders to trust us to receive their stories. We want to ask all of you who are here, all of you who are listening, to treat this process respectfully, to listen carefully and respectfully to what it is that the survivors are going to say to us. I know that there are many of you here who have other things that are on your mind that you want to talk about. You want to protest the roads on your reserve, perhaps. Perhaps you're not happy with your chief's salary. Perhaps you're not happy with Mayor Iverson, although I don't know why you would possibly have anything to complain about him. But if there is any other thing that is on your mind that you want to raise, please don't do it here. Have respect for the survivors. Understand that this is important to us. And in return, we will have respect for you too and the things that you believe in and that are important to you. And we will do that much together. So I thank you again for being here. And on behalf of the commissioners, I look forward to these next few days and trust that survivors will feel when we have completed these four days together that we have accomplished something together. Miigwech. You're listening to the CJSR edition. On today's episode, we're featuring excerpts from the National Truth and Reconciliation event that took place in Edmonton on March 27th to 30th, 2014. Many stories were shared at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and we encourage you to visit the Truth and Reconciliation website, www.trc.ca, in order to see, hear, and bear witness to all the archived footage from the events that have taken place across the country. Once again, please note that these testimonials contain sensitive and graphic content that may be disturbing to some people. If you or someone you know is experiencing distress, please call the Indian Residential Schools Crisis Line at 1-866-925-4419. 
We would like to excerpt the following survivor stories from the commissioner's sharing panel on March 28th. This is survivor Terry Lusty. Good morning, everybody. I thank you for your attendance here. I want to begin by thanking Creator for seeing us all on this side of Mother Earth. It's such a wonderful thing. We all survived to see another day. I want to acknowledge the commissioners, Murray, Willie, Mary, for the tremendous difficult task that they've had to endure all this time, and they're far from done. I'd like to also acknowledge people I worked with out there with the National Residential School Survivors Society. We sat on the same board. John Banksland. Okay. Ted Cuisance back here. It's great to see you people. It was nice again to see Gordon Williams, John Morriso, people who have been, you know, Eugene Arcan doing all the work that they are with the TRC. I thank you for that. And I thank all the survivors here, as well as the public, for the support you are showing us as survivors, because that is what we need out there for us to continue on, despite the resiliency that we have as individuals. We still need you. You count. I spent eight years in St. Joseph's School in Winnipeg, right along Portage Avenue at the West End just before you hit St. James. Right next to me sat Donald Laforte, the late Donald, my good buddy, sat right beside me in classrooms, a very good artist. He later became an educator like myself. And right in front of him, sat a young man, little did I ever imagine to see the strides he would make. We had those people even from as far back as then. I'm talking about the 40s. Cyril Keeper from the Selkirk area, just north of Winnipeg. He went on to become a city alderman and then a member of parliament. We have those people out there. And a lot of it is because we had to learn to be so strong in that system. I'm not going to go on much longer because I want to do my poems and get out of here and let you share other speakers. The, uh, the, the one thing I would like before I get into them, though, is to just say how privileged and honored I am to have worked alongside so many wonderful people from the community over the years. They have helped me survive all this time. I've been so blessed, so fortunate. Creator kept me off the streets, well, not in, not 100%, but basically off the streets, off of booze, off of drugs. I never got into that scenario. 
I was really, really fortunate to do that because so many of our people, I, you know, and th that's the other ones I wanted to acknowledge, of course, is those we've lost along the way. I, I miss them so badly. So many of our survivors didn't last long out there. They went well before their time. And it's a system that did that. And I've encouraged, I encourage a lot of our youth to go on. We need the writers, we need the photographers out there to tell our stories and to do it on an ongoing basis. Not just this, what's happening here, but other things as well. It's very, very critical. That said, please allow me to share this with you. My first poem was called simply Residential School. Eight long years in a residential school. Eight long years under white man's rule. Out to Christianize, that is what they claim. Out to missionize those with mortal stain. Well, that's what they've done for over a hundred years and in the process brought on many tears. Our people were forbidden to speak their tongue, their hair cropped short when they were young. Now that good old strap was their golden rule, applied to our people in a fashion cruel. Their wire fences kept us restrained, our values were shunned, our bodies maimed. They sent us to school, taught us to read about their religion, about their creed. They kept us many miles from our home. We recall what it was like to be alone. But we fooled our saviors, our masters all, because when Manitou beckoned, we heeded his call. Though the white man had taken so much away, he could not remove what was there to stay, our culture strong. Aye, aye. The second poem is called simply, Just Kids. And it refers to us innocent kids that were victimized and traumatized by those institutions. We were kids, just kids, that's all I can say. So fortunate to be around to this day. It was a time in our lives we were taken away. It was terrible being kids with nothing to say. Taken from our parents, away from our home, in no time at all, we were alone on our own. For kids like me, it was a lot worse. It was like being reborn, tagged with a curse. No mother, no father, no siblings to call. We encountered neglect of health, education too. The doctors were rare and eyeglasses few. We didn't have games, no kinds of toys, no radio, no TV, no reading no joy. You couldn't want things. You couldn't complain. 
All you could do was shoulder the pain. To make matters worse, no visitors, no store. We hopped passing trains in tall grass. We played war. Child laborers we were, that is a fact, working chapels and gardens, breaking our backs. We never experienced caring nor love. Instead, we were punished and often shoved. Some, some of us scaled fences to run away, escape. But when we were caught, the staff made us quake. We laughed and we cried, whether right, whether wrong. Now we say it all in books and in song. The hurts of the past for some have come and gone. Some have been healed, now they are strong. Of our childhood we were robbed, that is for sure. It's truly a miracle so many endured. We were kids, just kids, that's all I can say. So fortunate to be around to this day. I'll not trouble you much longer. I just have one more shorter poem. This one appears in the uh, Edmonton Sun today on page 10. For those who are interested in a copy of it, I also sent copies of my poems, the, the one, two I just read for the, that was my contribution to this event this year. I printed off 2,300 copies, and I'd like to thank the Aboriginal Relations Office of City of Edmonton for helping me in that regard. That mayor is going to be a force for our people, believe me. This one is, I just penned less than a week ago, called A Survivor's Prayer. Creator, help me. Ease my pain. Do not allow my prayers to be in vain. Raise me gently to your clouds on high. Comfort us survivors till the day we die. It's been no easy matter to forgive and forget those who wronged us in their religious net. Still many of us put it behind and forgave in our quest for closure, our sanity to save. We have traveled so long, so very far, bearing the memories, healing our scars. We live with the trauma all of these years. It truly is difficult to stifle the tears. We lose control, let emotions take flight, any time, any place, be it day or night. No matter how resilient our people may be, only you, Creator, can set us free. So, Creator, help us. Ease our pain. Do not allow our prayers to be in vain. Raise us gently to your world on high. Comfort us survivors till the day we die.
はいはい Thank you, Terry. This is Survivor, Marjorie Wright. My name is Matu Yipiaki. My spirit name is Matu Yipiaki. I, I have come a long way in this life. I have changed a lot. The first thing that I learned from my sister, whose story I am going to tell today, the first thing she taught me was about how to act in bars. My mom and dad were not educated. They were either drinking or they were into religion. My sister was the oldest one. She was 16 years older than me. I have only one younger brother. My mother had 15 children. And what really worries me now is that I'm starting to forget my language at 67. I was the youngest girl in my family, and now I'm the matriarch. I am the oldest girl in my mom's and dad's family. I, I want to tell my sister's story because she has, did not want to tell it when she was alive. She always said, don't tell anybody, don't talk about this. My dad didn't let me go to residential school, and I'm really grateful for that. But I was beaten in, in public school. I was ridiculed by my playmates. I was beaten when I got home. And because of that, I went into alcoholism and drug addiction. My sister taught me a lot about life. Her name was Ina. My dad called her Nuspao. I mean, tiny little chin. I really miss my sister. She died a few years ago. And I really honor her because she learned so much in residential school. She did not want to tell anybody this story. But she told it to me in confidence, and only now I am coming out with it. When I was 20, she saved my life. She delivered my baby when my doctors would not even look at me. The doctors had given up. They said that, they were not going to, that I was not going to make it. My sister said, no, you are going to deliver this baby, and that's all there is to it. My firstborn was stillborn. My first baby was not alive. And my sister was so happy that I lived. And where did, you know, when, when I asked her a few months later where she learned how to deliver babies, in her drunken state, she said to me, I learned how to deliver babies in residential school. 
And I said, but I thought you guys were segregated. I thought you guys were not allowed to interact with the boys. And she said that there were, there were priests there and sometimes the boys would manage to get over to the girls. And, they were, and some of the nuns too had babies and she had to be one of the ones to deliver those babies. I had a cousin who also told me that he went, he was forced to go and bury babies that were newborn. He, it was his job to go and bury those babies. That's a lot of lives to lose. And a lot of denial because there are a lot of people who didn't acknowledge their births. My, my sister was lucky that she wasn't sexually abused there because she had, learned, she had taken an interest in that medical aspect. I wonder these days how many women have gone to residential school and delivered those babies and not told anybody. My heart goes out to you. There were a lot of things that I wanted to, to tell everybody about how my sister acted. She was very understanding about a lot of things. She understood about incest. She understood about sexual abuse. She understood about alcoholism. And there was a lot of things that she told me in, in, that I shouldn't do. Try to stay away from this. Don't do that. She was very wise that way. And she was quite an alcoholic herself. But she had a sense of humor that she never ever let go of. I want to say that there's a lot of things that the family has gone through and it affected me. I didn't know that it affected me. I didn't know that residential schools affected me. When my daughter asked me a few, few, well, last year, I believe it was, she asked me if I was in residential school or if I went. I said no. But I may as well have. Because residential school wasn't the only place that kids were beaten. They were beaten in, in schools, right from grade, grade one. Until I, went, until I quit school, I was beaten as a child by the teacher or made fun of by somebody. Sometimes I look at the people who have been to residential school and say, I admire you. People look at me and they say, you've never been. And I say, well, how do you know? And they say, it's because of the way you laugh and because it's how easy you cry because it comes from the very bottom of your stomach. 
There is a difference, but there isn't a difference. Sometimes we, we leave home to try and get away from the pain. And sometimes we can't say, I'm sorry. I am so sorry to my daughters for being the way I was, to my grandchildren for the way they were, and what I learned yesterday. I am so sorry to the people who hurt so bad. And I am grateful that there are things that are going to be done about this now. It's about time. I pray to Creator that we can all walk together and eliminate all the discrimination. Eliminate all the alcoholism, the sex abuse, the drug abuse, the violence. that all culminated from the residential school, from, from the public schools where the teachers beat the kids. I don't know where to turn about that because I know that that's where my pain comes from. I often think of teachers and say, how dare they do that? How dare they? How could they do that to some people? How could anybody sexually abuse a child? And yet it runs in my family. I don't talk to my brothers because that's what they do. I pray for all of you, and I always will. I pray for our people to get up and stand strong. And I thank you for letting me speak. Thank you for your support. That's it for this week's episode of the CJSR edition. Thank you very much for tuning in. This week's program was produced and edited in the studios of CJSR FM 88.5. We'd like to express our most sincere gratitude to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission for allowing us to record the Alberta National Event. A very special thank you to all those people who you heard on today's show. Mayor Don Iveson, Justice Murray Sinclair, and the two residential school survivors, Terry Lusty and Marjorie Wright. They shared their stories about their experiences at residential schools and their expressions of reconciliation. For more information on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, please visit the TRC's website, www.trc.ca. This episode of the CGSR edition contains sensitive content and graphic testimonials that might have been disturbing to some people. If you or someone you know are experiencing distress, please call the Indian Residential Schools Crisis Line at 
866-925-4419.